This episode is full of spoilers and contains some not-so-super language. citizens welcome to the fortress of potitude i'm dave michaels i'm brian betts and we are the cape podcasters and this is the show that's doing this entire episode in a split i have a chair on both sides of me <laughs> i am full-blown van dam split right now as we speak and i'm doing this episode perched between two moving volvo trucks that's a hell of a lot more badass than just my chairs well you know do what I you can do. Kia chairs. I built them. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, did that you build the trucks, skill. Brian? I did not build the trucks. I yeah. Did, you know, did a split between them. That's so damn impressive. Just also, very impressive on the part of the drivers of these trucks. Just keeping it <laughs> a proper Van Dam distance apart, exactly, in order to not tear that man's groinal area in twine. <laughs> you never want to tear your groinal area in twine. <laughs> I don't even know what his nickname would be if like that had happened because he's like he's the muscles from Brussels, yes. But if his groinal area is torn in twine, Van Dam. <laughs> I am so excited this week to talk about 1994's Time Cop, Time directed Cop. by Peter Fucking Hyams and starring. John fucking Claude fucking Van fucking damn. Absolutely. John Claude Van fuck. This movie was chosen by our lovely, lovely patrons. We raised over $500 for the Extra Life Foundation, and they hit two stretch goals while donating. So they got to pick this month's movie, Time Cop, and next month's movie. By movie, I mean the Ebert pick. December's pick is going to be Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring. But I don't want to bring Brian down talking L-O-T-R, because we're talking Time Cop, baby. That's right. Time Cop for now. And you're not mad at me yet, because you don't know how many IMDb trivia facts there are. Okay. Um, are there as many IMDb trivia facts as Jean-Claude Van Damme has abs? Not quite. Okay, so there's not 24. Got it. <laughs> that's how many there were on IMDb. Total. Oh, that's actually so. kind of wild, too, then. Have you ever seen this thing before? No, no, I've never seen this movie. And how has your life changed since you've seen it? I've just been doing a lot more splits while trying. <laughs> I'm like, I purposely wore shorts this episode. To, watch, watch, watch. I'll show you. Ready? Watch. You watching? I'm watching. Dave has, has stood up and he is now. Oh, are you stretching before you? You got to stretch first. Come on. Oh, look at that. Get some distance between those ah, legs. My groinal. Oh, don't don't tear it. See how high I got? That was pretty good. I got so high. He was trying to uh, you know lift the leg up and do the do that sweet knot kick. I balanced in everything. It was steady <laughs> for sure. Knot kick. It's not a kick. It's like it's... the perfect intro to his character. This movie. We'll get there. I've we never will. seen this thing either. God damn it! I'm just like so fired up right now. Me too. Uh, this movie was just too much fun. Let's get right into this thing. 
Let's do it. 1863, Gainesville, Georgia. What a place to start. Not where I expected this movie to start at all. Confederate soldiers carrying a load of gold bullion are met by a lone highwayman who politely asks them to just give him the gold. He seems very polite, but at the same time, so do the Confederates, and that seems pretty out of character. Sure does. They're having a little standoff, but with words. And they're good words, too. Like, I'm surprised at how well written this scene is, and I was like, but there's a man who barely speaks English coming up in this as the star. <laughs> what are we doing putting all these good prose and phrases in here? You're wasting them. No, we're getting them in there so that, you know, they're in there. <laughs> getting them out of the way now. Like, Quick. look, Ma, how good of a writer I am. Okay, here comes the guy who can't talk right. <laughs> Quick, make sure everybody's talking real good so people don't notice when Van Damme shows up that all of a sudden the dialogue <laughs> becomes written by a kindergartner. That's generous, first of all, because that <laughs> kindergartner would be like an absolute stud for some of these jokes that Van Damme's going to have, but we're going to get there. Obviously, the armed soldiers who outnumber this highwayman are like, I- I'm sorry, you want what? The gold. There's just one of you. When they don't comply, the highwayman pulls out two laser-guided automatic pistols and shoots all the soldiers dead. I don't know about you, but I got pretty jazzed. When I see these Confederate guys pulling out their stupid guns. (laughs) Then you got the nice fella just pulling out these automatic weapons and lighting everybody up, but not the horses because PETA. Exactly. You better leave those horses alone. Those horses either are great at dodging bullets or those horses missed their cue to die. Yeah, those are just bad actor horses. Bad horse actors. (laughs) If you say, look, I'm already talking like Van Damme. That's right. (laughs) Did you give him a carrot? Oh, your horses. Your horses are not on cue. <laughs> I like how your Van Damme is just taking away the first letter of whatever <laughs> you're about to say. Especially if it's an H. The man does not know how to do H's. Even Alec to that horse. <laughs> you can lead an horse to water, but you can't make him drink. You're making him super Dutch, and I'm yeah. digging it. <laughs> So Highwayman presumably makes off with all this gold, but we don't really find out because we're going to Washington, D.C., October 10th, 1994. What a time to be alive. The U.S. government is creating the Time Enforcement Commission to combat the misuse of the newly developed time travel technology. And I love this guy who comes in, George, his name is. George. And like he walks into the Senate Intelligence Committee who's just sitting around a table, not fighting at all. And that's how you know this is... Not modern times. And they're having a ball with each other. (laughs) They're having so much fun just being like, I can't give you money. All right, I'll give you the money. But some of the dialogue here kicks all the asses, too. It's great. It's so good. So George is a representative of the president, and he's got this intel that the Senate committee doesn't have. And he's like, hey, guess what, guys? Shit's going down, and we're going to need you to approve some funds. Well, it's kind of buck wild because he walks in there, and he's like, yeah, I remember that time travel thing. Uh, yeah, you guys are laughing. Well, it's real, dickhead. Why don't you sit up straight and pay attention and stop being all chummy with your stupid committee and listen? It's going to cost yeah. money. And I love right away how the senator's like, well, how much money? He's like, a lot. He's like, how much is a lot? He's like, it's more than a little and less than too much. And that that's, is a wonderful line. That's exactly what a lot is. Absolutely crushing it. The writers. Yes. Mark Richardson and Mark Verheiden. Who are actually... The ones who wrote the Time Cop comic book. It's very rare that you get the actual comic writers on the movie. 
It is, and I feel like they just captured the tone so damn perfectly. The U.S. government has discovered that the gold bullion that went missing back in the Confederate times was recently used in an arms purchase, which is, you know, not great. The stolen gold part or the arms purchase part? Both. Okay. I had to figure out what side you're on, Brian. <laughs> gold went missing, then it turned up for some illegal arms deals. I'm just asking, because you called the, the highwayman at the beginning of this thing a friendly fella. And I'm like, Oh, oh I said he was polite. You said he was friendly. Oh, shit. Maybe I don't know what, I'm, what side I'm on. When it all comes <laughs> down to it. He was very friendly and polite. The TEC is meant to detect time ripples among the timelines and stop them from happening before they reach the present, since people can't travel forward in time because that hasn't happened yet. Right, and we'll get there. So they have to travel back to either change history or steal riches, and that's what the TEC is tasked to put a stop to. Exactly, and I know what you're thinking right now. This is a time travel movie with Jean-Claude Van Damme. I'm going to need you to just maybe... Tell Logic to go sit in the other room until we're done with this episode and just enjoy the ride. Yeah, maybe just turn your brain off and go like, yeah, time travel. Got it. Got it. We're going to be in this time, then we're going to be in a different time, and nothing else should matter around that at all because time travel is fun. Exactly. Senator Aaron McComb, played by Ron Silver, volunteers to oversee the commission. And he's a, he's a guy who's at the meeting and making all kinds of faces that make you think, Maybe a shady character here. <laughs> the way they shoot him with his stupid, like, scruffy beard. Yeah. They're just like, oh, bad guy. Okay. Very harsh lighting. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Evil smirk close up. Yeah. Oh, it checks every box. And speaking of checking boxes, <laughs> we're going to get there in just a little bit again. I know. Lotta will get theirs early on. Meanwhile, DC police officer Max Walker, played by Jean fucking Claude fucking Van fucking Dam is offered a job as a TEC agent. And he's like, I gotta go tell my wife the good news. Off to the mall. That's where I go to tell my wife all the good news in the 90s. That actually totally checks out. That actually makes sense. He meets his wife, Melissa, played by Mia Sarah, at a local shopping mall where he stops a purse snatcher. It was jarring seeing Mia Sarah not being Ferris Bueller's girlfriend. Yes. Because in her career, at this point, She's gone from hooking up with Matthew Broderick, skipping school, to boning down with JCVD. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, the progression there makes no sense. <laughs> the range. Like the difference between the muscles from Brussels and the Matthew Broderick from New York. The the the, the stork from New York. Yeah. It's the best a... I got on the fly. <laughs> Storks the, fly. The difference is drastic. It's a big difference in, in just overall musculature. <laughs> Matthew Broderick, famous for never having won. <laughs> Jean-Claude Van Damme, famous for having all of them. Right. It's almost like Jean-Claude Van Damme like, siphoned all the muscles out of Matthew Broderick and put him into <laughs> himself. He just stole all of Matthew Broderick's muscles. I like that. And I could just like hear Broderick going like, oh, man, this is unfortunate. <laughs> Let me go do a Godzilla movie to, so I sound tough one day. <laughs> I would do something about it, but you see, you have all my muscles. <laughs> I somehow want to talk about that Godzilla movie one day now. Just like in my head, like thinking of Matthew Broderick saying, that's a lot of fish. <laughs> I guess it every time. <laughs> 
was a lot of fish. It was so many fish. I mean, I understand the line's ridiculous, but did you see all the fish? Was, he's not wrong. No, he's not. People shit on him for that part for no reason. It's everything around it that's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of fish. Dave, are you ready for the first actual IMDb trivia fact for this movie? I never am. Fire away. In the beginning, Melissa hears in the mall, does anybody know what time it is by Chicago? Its lyrics has to do with a stranger asking for the time. I'm glad that people take the time to write that out. <laughs> Maybe get a hobby. Very helpful to me in processing this movie. Oh, it's about time. That right there is a fantastic waste of time. And it's probably more of a waste of time than if you showed up at Matthew Broderick's door and like tried to do one push-up with him. <laughs> All right, we can do it together. Come on. He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't be able to get up. I'm convinced of that. I believe it. He'd go down, and that boy would stay down. I live here now. <laughs> On the ground. And then his wife, Sarah Jessica Parker, would come out, and she'd be like, oh, it's you, K-Podcasters boys. What were you doing saying that horses can't talk right? Look at me. <laughs> I hit all of my cues, thank you very much. <laughs> and I don't even need carrots on set of X and the Itty. Oh, you could lead Sarah Jessica Parker to water and, and she would drink. <laughs> oh, boy. Now she would definitely say that to us. Oh, without a doubt she would. We made it worse. We did make it worse, and that's fine. I didn't realize this episode was going to take a turn on the Broderick Parker household. <laughs> I did not realize that they were a thing. So They have been married since 1997, according to Wikipedia. And that's how little I care about the affairs of Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick. And let me find all the pictures where they look happy. Hold on looking. Hold on looking. Hold on looking. Why don't you do your next talking? I'll keep looking. Maybe yeah, you let a, me. I, I don't know if I'm going to find one. You just interrupt me when you find it. Oh, God, Broderick with a mustache. <laughs> Now, oh, you'll never see me happy again either. Why? Do you want to see this thing? I don't know. It I sounds like it's going to haunt my dreams. It might. I'm sending it to you right now. Boom. You got Broderick stashed. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Yeah, it's like it doesn't grow in all the way, and it's not the same color as his hair. Yeah. Why does this picture looks like a serial killer and his mom? <laughs> Sarah Jessica Parker. <laughs> like she's defending him. Like, no, even though he killed all those people, he's still a nice boy. Yeah, just don't look underneath the porch. Don't do it. Yeah, he dresses in clown makeup every now and then. That's not important. Just leave our porch alone whenever you see Matthew Broderick with a mustache. <laughs> all right. Well, now that I'm fully terrified, <laughs> may never sleep again. Didn't Matthew Broderick kill someone? Is that a thing? I don't I'm, know. I'm pretty sure it's a thing. I just Googled Matthew Broderick and car accident popped up so damn fast that, yeah, he absolutely had to have killed someone. <laughs> had to and happen. I love the way that like the first article pops up because it's like a, a weird Captain Ahab like way of describing her. Like, the roads were wet in Ireland. Oh, no. Where they went on a drive on the right side of the road. He crashed a vehicle holding two local women. The locals died. Broderick got away just fine. So he just invaded Ireland, killed their women, and came back. Boom, boom. <laughs> die bow bow. Die, yeah, die bow, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, JCVD. I'm like right, in right, a right, weird right. Broderick hole right now. So, so back at this mall, 
Get out of the Broderick hole. Oh, shit. It was Jennifer Grey that was with him. That was his sister in Ferris Bueller. Yeah. Wow. Who would have thought? Like, I watched that movie, and you're like, yeah, this kid's a sociopath, but didn't know this. Like, the sister was involved in it, too. Just like, hey, let's go to Ireland and kill some people and come back. <laughs> it's just easier to get away with it there, I guess. I don't know. I guess so. <laughs> this took a turn. It did. Carry on with the time cop. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> so Jean-Claude Van Damme sneaks up behind his wife at the mall and talks to her like he's a stranger. It was a little confusing at first. It was, but then they like it's the reveal. Like, oh, you... You were at work or something, because I know you. And he's like, no, I had that interview. Very, very in-tune couple here. <laughs> Sparks are flying. They are all over the place. You better wear gloves if you're working on this hot metal of a relationship, because you're going to get burned from all those sparks. I know all the good words. I'm going to whisper them in your ear. And the audience doesn't get to know what the good words are. But hold on, hold on. I got to go put my foot in this guy's face for a second. Oh, God. All right. So a man on rollerblades steals a purse from an old lady and starts skating away and gets stopped by a big old Wolverine boot that's just up there. Just it has no business being that high and that still. And you're just like, all right, you know what? If you're going to introduce a character, fine. I feel like it, that, that works, you know? I just love that before this guy even steals the purse, he's like, oh, rollerblades? Got to go fuck with this guy. <laughs> and then sure enough the guy steals the purse and just somehow doesn't see a man lifting his leg in the air as he skates toward him directly in front of him and i want to know what like the direction is there like on set when you're talking to jcvd do you just say and do the leg thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> pose like you're kicking but not but don't kick Stop. just do the pose it's very impressive do that we like Wolverine the way boots. you balance on one foot <laughs> And having a boot in your face, I guess, is enough for you to be like, you know what? I'm going to go home and give this nice lady her purse back. Isn't JCVD a cop, though? He doesn't even bother arresting this guy. He just says, that was a big mistake. <laughs> oh, there's there's the good writing. I've been waiting for it. But then the guy just gives the purse back, and the old lady's just like, ah, tisk tisk. And then they just everyone goes on with their day. Exactly. The old lady's like, she like begrudgingly says thank you to the, the purse robber. And then she turns and gives an honest thank you to Jean-Claude Van Damme. Like, what is happening here? I have no idea how crime works in whatever world we're in. He just smiles and says, all right, go about your day. No crime happened here. No crimes boot. happening anywhere in this world. Because you got a purse snatcher who gets a boot in the face. And Matthew Broderick's killing ladies and getting away with it. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it's pandemonium. Law and order. It's gone. It's out the window. Dun, dun. <laughs> it's done, done. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> After all of this, uh, JCVD notices that there's some three odd-looking punk old men staring at him. And he's like, that's weird. I'm going to walk away like nothing's weird about that. And then turn around, and they're going to be gone and still just go about my life. Like it's no big deal. So he and Melissa go home, and they do the sex. They do the sex hard, though. Yeah, they do. Like, it's egregious sex. It is absolutely egregious. Like, I was like, oh, okay, we're going to do some some saxophone music. We're going to do some, some light pans across, and then we're going to fade into the next. No, no. We're zooming in on all the bits. I am fully convinced that Tommy Wiseau in the room was hoping to capture this type <laughs> of vibe for his sex scene. This is exactly what he was going for. 
It's just instead Jean-Claude Van Damme has all the muscles and Tommy Wiseau's naked body looks like it's just a sack full of pebbles. Because <laughs> it's just weird shapes and, and bits about it. It's kind of like, you remember Stretch Armstrong's like villain, man? How you had to like pump him up and he got weirdly hard and that shouldn't ever have to happen? I don't remember that and now I'm traumatized. Yeah, well, he, he did that and it was, I don't know what was in there that made it do that, but it was like a weird texture inside that made it feel like it was hard. And that's Tommy Wiseau's body. It's gross. That's a visual for sure. Enjoy that visual, everyone. You're welcome. Be haunted by it like I will from <laughs> now on. It's just going to be nonstop Tommy Wiseau's body, naked body, and Matthew Broderick's mustache. Oh, God. If you put the two together. And Sarah Jessica Parker trying to look happy. It's impossible. Never going to happen. Later that evening, Max is called into work while Melissa tries to tell him some heavy-handed important news. She really takes her sweet time with this. She does. She's like, I have to tell you something. Don't leave. Don't take the next half an hour to leave without me telling you this very important thing I have to tell you. Right. The phone rings, and this is one of the weirdest phone rings I've ever heard because it doesn't ring so much like in a pattern. Like when a phone rings, it goes, bring, bring, bring. Right. This phone, it rings like, bring. Ah, please, please don't answer that phone. We just did the sex. Please don't answer it. Bring. Bring. But I have to. Bring. So it only goes between lines. It's super convenient. It's a very polite phone that doesn't interrupt you. That's right. It's like that highwayman. (laughs) Exactly. He he created a phone in the past. It's called the excuse me phone. And it's just very, very polite. Great manners. Waits for an opening and says, "Uh, hey, you have a call. (laughs) No, go on, go on, go on. I'll tell you again in a second. I'll wait for you to finish your sentence. You have a call. (laughs) It's genius, really. And I think what's weird about this scene, besides the weird ringing phone, the polite phone, is that instead of just telling him what her news is, she just gets dressed and goes downstairs and broods. Yeah. While Max Walker, like, puts on all of his police gear. Like, there's plenty of time here. There's so much time. They were very, very naked people. So much time. But instead, she's going to just go downstairs and be upset that he won't listen to her news instead of going to work, even though they were both just asleep a second ago. Exactly. She could have told him any time during the day, really. Right. In between thrusts. <laughs> you got the time. It was slow sex. It would have killed the moment. Oh, you're saying it was a moment. Okay. That's <laughs> all right. You do you. <laughs> the weirdly aggressive moment. It was weirdly aggressive. So as Max leaves the house, he's immediately ambushed by the same weird old punk dudes from the mall earlier, and they kick the shit out of him. Yeah, JCVD doesn't do any fighting back. No, he's just like, all right, you landed a good hit, and now I'm just going to go limp, I guess. (laughs) Hit me right in my, the one muscle that's not trained as well as all the other ones. I'm going down. (laughs) And then just for good measure, they shoot him in the chest. They absolutely do, and I know what you're thinking here film watcher and listener, surely you're not going to kill JCVD off that fast. That would be crazy. And you're right. My favorite thing about bulletproof vests is that they only work if you unbutton your shirt after you get shot. And Roger Ebert makes a point of saying that because he says that this movie is a harvest of entries from Ebert's little movie glossary. (laughs) There are so many that kind of check the box. He said the bulletproof vest rule is also illustrated. Whenever a character wearing such a vest is shot, 
He always falls and seems to be dead only to be alive a moment later, after which it is obligatory that he unbutton his shirt and look at the vest so that the grateful audience can see that he was wearing it. <laughs> it is one of my favorite tropes of all time. It really is up there. Ah, I'm in so much pain. Let me open up this bulletproof vest to the air so I can relieve some of that pain. <laughs> That's not how it works. <laughs> so the old punk guys, after they shot him, they go inside the house. And they're they're going for Melissa now, for reasons, even though the guy they were presumably after is now dead. Max gets up dramatically and runs toward the house, and just before he gets there, the whole thing blows up. It really escalated quickly. Super quickly. All the bad guys are definitely still inside, and that place just blew up. Well, they're like upstairs in this like window that overlooks, and you see all the bad guys surrounding Melissa. And you're just like, oh, he's going to go in there and save the day. And then it, the whole entire house explodes, throws him backwards. And I love how Jean-Claude Van Damme has the same exact grunt for being shot in the chest <laughs> while he's wearing a bulletproof vest and when a house explodes on him. Yeah. He's just like, yeah, yeah, sure, uh, yeah, yeah. He's nothing if not a consistent. That's very true. He's a professional, some would call it. Somebody said it, I'm sure. <laughs> Cut to Wall Street, October 30th, 1929. We're in the midst of the Wall Street Stock market crash, you know, Black Tuesday. When a man named Lyle Atwood, played by Jason Schombing, pulls up a 2004 copy of USA Today from his briefcase, calls up his guy and says, I'd like to purchase some stocks, please. And this is right after he watches a man jump off the, the roof of the building, and he's like all cavalier about it, too. I love he's just like, shit happens. Yeah, and he just keeps carrying on about his day. He makes jokes about it with the guy, the elevator attendant. And the elevator man makes jokes about it, too. It's like, I see it all the time, man. New York, big buildings. What are you going to do? The elevator man actually makes a great joke. He's like, if you keep doing this, you're going to be out of a job. And he's like, only on the way down. Ah. I was like, that's fantastic. That is a good joke. But yeah, I, I really like how he pulls out the 2004 USA Today. I'm a big fan of that. Yeah. It, they made it really super subtle, too, because they zoomed right in on the date, but only after he pulled out his modern day headphones and... <laughs> He did a lot of things to be like, hey, is this guy from this time? I'm not sure. So this guy is taking advantage of the stock market crash and just buying up a bunch of stuff to make himself some money in the future. Max, now clearly older and now working for the TEC, walks through a portal and confronts his former partner, Atwood. Well, we know that he's older because while a lot of movies would use like makeup to show 10 years older, which yeah. probably wouldn't look like that much if you're like a 30-year-old Jean-Claude Van Damme, and then you're a 40-year-old. I doubt it's going to look like much of an aging process at all. So instead they said, hmm, 2004. Yeah, mullets will still be in. They're, they're definitely poised for a comeback. In <laughs> 2004. What a futuristic haircut from the 80s. Uh, I just, I love the, the predictions that this movie makes about technology and things in the future. They can get awfully bold. We will get there. Oh, yes. Atwood calls his bodyguards. And Max takes him out, no problem, because he's Jean-Claude Van Damme, and they didn't hit that one muscle. <laughs> I love the one guard is like, yeah, I went nine rounds with the, what's his name, famous boxer from the 20s. Oh, God, I love that so much, because he puts his fists up in the way that the old school boxers do. Nah, he goes old-timey I've boxy. gone, and I've gone to pop, pop, bang, with the Paul Giamatti, huh? Oh, yeah, with my curly mustache and my bike with a very large front wheel. <laughs> It's basically the type of person who would say aeroplane. <laughs> aeroplane. Yes, exactly. And meanwhile, Jean-Claude Van Damme would be like, 
Aural plane. <laughs> oh, God. Aural plane. Don't put the plane in your mouth. Don't. Not, that's not what an oral plane is. It's not a thing. What are you saying? Then, of course, Atwood pulls out a gun and starts shooting it at his former partner because, you know, I'm doing stuff in the past that's bad. You, you, I can't get caught. And he almost shoots his secretary. It's a whole scene. It is a whole scene. It's a, <laughs> a very long, quote-unquote, fight scene. This is a very futuristic gun. Every gun in the future has laser sights on them. And it leaves the biggest hole you've ever seen in whatever it hits. Yes, and it runs out of ammo super quick. Yes, it does. And then Walker interrogates Atwood to reveal who he's working for. And he's like, ah, Senator McComb, the evil guy from the opening scene. Remember him? Shocker. He needs money for his presidential campaign. But Atwood is terrified of McComb's threat to send hitmen back in time to kill his entire family, even his cat. This is the part where you usually say cinema cat. Was the, I don't remember seeing a cat, though. Yeah, we don't see the cat. He just okay. mentions it. <laughs> that should be enough for cinema cats. They love their cats. They sure do. It's like, oh, the final musing. Don't threaten people's cats in the past. That one came right from the top of my head, and it felt real. It did feel real. I have to imagine that's as much thought as they put into it, too. Yeah, that checks out. So Atwood refuses to testify and instead is going to jump out the window, since that seems to be all the rage these days. As he's falling from the skyscraper, Walker jumps after him and catches him because gravity is different in the 20s. And he teleports him <laughs> back to 2004. And I love it because Walker has like this vest on. And when he opens the vest just a little, he pushes a button and it creates like the portal to bring you back. Yeah. To where you came from, I guess. And that's what he does with Atwood here as they fall for forever. <laughs> But I have so many questions about how the time travel, how the ability to do it works. And we'll get there. We in a will get there. Bit. It is confusing. I have so many questions. So many it. questions. Back at the TEC headquarters, Atwood refuses to testify against Macomb. And the TEC agency has their own tribunal set up, I guess. And they're like, all right, well, then you're immediately sentenced to death. And they send him back to 1929. And he just continues falling from where he was. I have to imagine it was like less of a fall, though, at that point, unless they like pushed him off a building in 2004. They're like, yeah, this looks like the bright height or whatever. We yeah. got to get the same reaction here. I guess. I have no idea. No idea how this works. Can I tell you something that I love about yes. this movie? That it's made in 1994 and that they use a dummy to land on the car. It's fantastic. It is fantastic because it's clearly a dummy. And I feel like that's like part of the charm of it. Yeah. Well, that scene took place in 1929, so they would have used a dummy then. But I'm saying that, <laughs> like, it's just such a wonderful thing not seeing like a CGI anything yeah. happening here. Like, yeah, this movie's full of horrible green screen, but this right here, ah, God, throw more dummies off things and link it land on things. Stop using the CGI for this. Bring back I dummies. I agree. I agree. More dummies, please. Just slam some. Old Model T's with dummies all day long. <laughs> I feel like the oldest version of Crash Test Dummies. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to drive this Model T into the wall at 10 miles per hour. You're going to die. Be careful. <laughs> Back at TEC headquarters in 2004, Senator McComb stops by because, you know, he's supposed to be overseeing them. And he's like, ah, oh, this place, I don't know. A lot of money. We could just stop people from time traveling and try to police it. Super expensive. And that's sort of brilliant for a villain. To oversee the main antagonist to your plot? Well, he has the ability to shut it down because he's the one who started it. Right. 
And he recognizes that, hey, if nobody's chasing me, then I'll have the ability to time travel without anyone trying to foil any of my plans. Exactly. But I think that's just brilliant. It's pretty clever. I agree. His visit has another purpose, too, though. Because as we know, Walker just brought in his former partner who was working for Macomb. So he's like, I got to find out what Walker knows. And Walker basically tells him, I know everything, putting himself in danger, which is probably not a very smart move. It's not. And it's funny because, I mean, JCVD might as well have said, I know you're the bad guy. And Macomb goes, uh, yeah. What are you going to do about it, though, bud? Good luck proving it. That's the movie now. We've set it up. There's also some exposition thrown in there about a computer chip company that Macomb lost a bunch of money in. And uh, the whole the same matter can't occupy the same space theory, which has never been tested, but it says it in the books. So, Right. Chekhov's plot point, for sure, there. That has to come back, and it will with a fury. Let's set up these these pins so we can knock them down later. <laughs> Macomb leaves the facility and orders his aide to have Walker killed. Well, kind of. He's like, you should go have a talk with him. The kind of talk that a man doesn't forget, because he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> so subtle. I love villains. They need to get all that money so they can buy TV time, because that's what wins elections. I mean, he's not totally wrong there, but I mean, how much money do you need if you're already this loaded from pulling off this scheme time and time and time and time again, literally? Uh, What more do you need? Apparently a million dollars more to get that sweet, sweet ABC airtime in 2004. That doesn't seem like much. It doesn't. But in 1994, it's a lot of money that, that they thought it would be a lot of money in 2004. Instead of, you know, just being good with your campaign funds, it's a lot easier to just go back in time and change some stuff and make the money that way. That's actually fair, but uh, hold on to your butts here. $1 million in 994. You ready? You sitting down? Mm-hmm. $1.8 million today. Boom. Good luck. Wow. Good luck raising that in more than two seconds. Well, that's why you go back to the 20s to raise it. The stakes are like so low here. <laughs> it's amazing. I need to be on TV more so I win the election. Like, if number two were in the room here, hearing this, like, Dr. Evil has just said he needs $1.8 million or $1 million, whatever, to go on TV, it's like, that's nothing. We could do that. Like, that's easy. Oh, yeah. I could just pull that out of this fund over here and just move it over, and Done. there you go. Paid Congratulations. for it. You're going to be on TV, Dr. Evil. All right. $1 million. Perfect. Excellent. Max goes to his boss, Director Matuzik, played by Bruce fucking McGill. Thank you for giving the fucking... I was honestly worried for a second. No, he absolutely deserved it. He tells him that Atwood named Macomb. And he's like, oh, you sure about that? He's like, yeah, it was definitely Macomb behind it. He says he has half the agency, and I believe him. And Matusik's like, he doesn't have me. And then Max says, nothing. Yeah, that's weird. And I like how they don't let him get away with that. Yeah, I was like, all right, fuck you too. And I'm like, ah, this feels like real dialogue. It sure does. (laughs) It's funny how, like, the most real thing JCVD says is nothing. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's like, they, they crack the code well, on how to deal yeah. with this Brussels man. <laughs> uh, the sprouts. That's probably not what they call the people there. Oh. <laughs> I just assumed. <laughs> Apologies to all of our Brussels listeners. Yes, both of you. All of our sprouts out in Brussels. I kind of um I'm going to get I'm going to double down on it actually. I like it. They're sprouts now. How have they not leaned into that if that's not what they're actually called? Like Brussels famous for a little fountain of a boy that pisses. 
That's not nearly as big as you would hope. <laughs> Start calling yourself the Sprouts. Exactly. It's perfect. You know, all of your Olympic teams, the Brussels Sprouts. Well, Brussels is part of Belgium, Bride, first of all. It's, yeah, well. <laughs> it's a greater country around it. It'd be even better if they just, like, declared independence just so they could name their teams the Sprouts. That becomes really, really complicated considering that the, the center of the EU is based in Brussels. There's a lot of issues there. I mean, Sprouts it. <laughs> Um, it sounds both threatening and adorable. I don't know <laughs> how I managed to, to combine those two words in one go, but... You're just a wordsmith, just like Jean-Claude Van Damme. it. <laughs> Sprouts it is definitely how he accidentally pronounces something. Oh, without a doubt. He's like, <laughs> uh, Sprout, he's S-P-R-O-U-G. I know my English. Can I get the pizza with Sprouts it on it? <laughs> What are you asking for? I don't know what that is. Oh, man. Sprouts, peppers, and onions? Jean-Claude, I don't know how to tell you this. That's not... Yeah, okay. You got it. Fine. <laughs> Start throwing random shit on it. Very hungry. <laughs> Matuzik tells Max that if he plans to launch a case against a presidential candidate, he better be airtight. Which, you know, that's solid advice. I agree. So Max goes home and watches some home videos of he and his wife making birdhouses or whatever. I find it weird that he's like quoting himself as he watches it. Like she's saying her words and he's sitting there and he's like saying the words that he said on the day. Yes. It's like, that is eerie. That's weird. And I was like, they're going to come back to this. This is going to be, he's going to go back in time and this is going to be the scene and he's going to have to impersonate himself. And no, that's never going to happen. This isn't some sort of like ready player one book thing here happening. That's what it felt like it was setting. I agree. And then it never paid off. Maybe in the second one. There's Time Cop 2? Time Cop 2, The Berlin Decision. It's direct to, direct to DVD, so I don't Feel know. Feel these it... sprouts. Feel how hard they are right now. <laughs> Check out these sprouts. Man, did not know that, and I'm very excited. I don't know how connected it is. I don't even know if Jean-Claude Van Damme is in it. I only know that it exists. Well, there you go. I guess stay tuned. We'll, we'll get there one day. We cut to the next morning, and while the news is talking about how the white supremacy party has qualified for matching political funding... <laughs> Which we're not even going to touch with a 10-foot pole. Not worth it at all. And I would also call it a 45-foot pole for more subtle reasons that aren't so yeah. subtle. Yeah. Not a political podcast. Exactly. And in 2004, they were way off. Be at least another 12 years. That's right. <laughs> so these two assassins break into Walker's apartment. And one of them tries to tase him to death. But the other one, he's got knives. He sure does. Uh, he, he brought a knife to... Uh, a split fight, really, I think is what it comes down to. <laughs> I like that Walker basically brought a shirt to a knife fight. He did. I think the crazy part about this is that we've all seen your, like, like musketeer movies or whatever, where they have these eloquent sword fights and whatnot with, like, these blades that are long and you can hit people with it from distance. Yeah. I have never, ever, ever seen that with hand knives before until I saw... Time Cop from 1994, directed by Peter fucking Hyams. Proper sword fighting with tiny knives. If you look up best knife fights ever of all time that should have won Oscars for everything for eternity, <laughs> it would just be Time Cop from 1994 that pops up. It won the Academy because Award. this is a proper knife fight that they're just like going wild on each other here. I didn't even know you could do that. I had no clue. I thought it was basically just walk up, stabby, stabby. That's it. No, 
no, it's not. And they even have that one moment where like the the knives like connect and they're pushing them towards each yeah. other. Like you, they do all the things, <laughs> everything you'd expect from a sword fight, but smaller. But a lot smaller with a man with enormous muscles. Oh, this guy's jacked. He should be able to just push this knife anywhere he wants. And I love the one part too, where the bad guy is just like they're having a knife fight. They're uh, holding each other off, and then he just pulls out a second knife. Yeah, it's like, but doesn't use them simultaneously. At you all. Should be used <laughs> until like the very end, where he's like, oh, "Oh shit, I could just stab a little bit here." Got him. I can use both hands at the same time. I thought there were rules. What a revelation! <laughs> Greatest knife fight in history of film. Done. It's so good, and obviously Jean Claude Van Damme wins. Of course he does. But then the other guy, he's still got his taser, and there's water spilling all over the kitchen, and he's about to get so tased with the future taser that's lethal. Because that's, that's where the people in 1994 saw tasers going in this <laughs> Exactly. That's where they're going to invest the money for a lethal weapon, is a hand taser. Everything I love about the non-lethal taser, we should take that and make it lethal. That sounds like a, a bold idea. So this guy tries to tase him while he's in the kitchen in the, in the wetness, and he just does a split on the kitchen counters. He jumps up and does his perfect split in the corner of the kitchen. That lazy Susan is looking up at him, just going like, Van Damme. Now I know why I'm called a lazy Susan. I can't do that shit. Can't do it at all. I do a spin. And look at this man. He's doing spin kicks and flippies, and I don't think he's ever connected with anything in his life. So unnecessary, too. Like, it you could have really just is. hopped up there. You didn't have to do a split. But obviously, the taser goes into the water, zaps the guy who's holding the taser, because that's how that works. And then he yep. passes out, I guess. I don't think he's dead. He's not dead. And we only know that because of what happens next. <laughs> oh, Jean-Claude Van Damme throws him through his own apartment wall? Yep. <laughs> just for good measure. Just just to be sure. Out in the hallway of the apartment building, we meet Sarah Fielding, played by Gloria fucking Rubin. Deserved. She is Max Walker's new partner on account of his old partner, you know, jumping from a building. Yep. Doing the bad thing and then having to die for it. Yeah, exactly. So while he's still investigating McComb to expose him of corruption, he gets partnered up with Sarah from Internal Affairs. They're looking into him because they're not so sure that he wasn't somehow in on Atwood's deal or something. Or something, right. They brush over. They're like, she's from Internal Affairs, and now she's going to be following you. And he's like, all right, whatever. I don't want that, but here we are. Got to progress this movie somehow. Exactly. And Max is telling Matuzik about the assassins sent to kill him, and then they get a, a notice that there's been a ripple. So they run over to Ricky's office, played by Scott Bellis, and they interrupt him in his VR porn to find out where the, <laughs> the ripple is coming from. I want to know who in the writing of this said, hey, do you remember the creepy grandpa from the Star Wars holiday special? Let's do that. <laughs> Can we get that one guy from the X-Files? Can we use him? He looks like he's kind of creepy. Perfect casting. I have an actual IMDb trivia fact about this. Yeah, I bet you do. The VR porn, which in 1994, that's pretty apt of them to, to suspect that might be coming down the wire. Well, it's really, really bold of them because what would VR porn have been like before that? Like a, a virtual boy with just like red lines everywhere and just like, <laughs> this is not hot. I have a headache. <laughs> Strapping that thing to your face while it's also simultaneously on the table. It doesn't make any sense. Not at all. So... Good on these writers for, for thinking that this could be a thing someday. I guess so. 
Anyway, the actual IMDb trivia fact. The virtual reality nude scene was originally supposed to be a nature documentary about beavers. They got close. However, the off-site film team got drunk on the evening of shooting and ended up in a strip bar. The next morning, they woke up realizing they had missed the bus to the nature reserve and instead had to film one of the dancers they had met in the club the night before. Is that actually true? There's no way of knowing for sure. Oh, man, that's amazing. Because if it's true, I love they're like, we need a beaver scene. We can film a beaver scene. That's some sort of like strange wilderness stuff right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I hope it's true, but knowing IMDb, who knows? Who knows? Walker and Fielding are sent back to 1994 to investigate the Ripple because they find out it's happening in Washington, D.C. And this is where I get a lot of my questions about this movie, about how to go back in time. Same. Because the way that they do it here is that they get in some sort of rocket car on this track <laughs> that drives towards this, I don't know what to call a rune, if you will, from like an Elder Scrolls <laughs> yeah. game. I have yeah. no clue what this thing is. Some sort of monolith with a wall behind it. And they strap themselves in. There's no explanation to any of this. No. Fielding is freaking out about how this action go down. Max Walker is not. They're worried he's going to fall asleep. There's even that joke in there. Like, hey, yeah. Looks like he's just like, yawn away from going to sleep. But I love how this rocket car takes off. It drives directly to this wall, and then it just disappears. Yeah. Like it has to get up to 88 miles an hour or something. <laughs> something like that. But then when they appear in the new time of 994 they're just walking there's yeah there's no car the car is there's no car at all what (laughs) i had the same question it's like all right so we get into this little rocket mobile fly at this wall everything disappears we end up in the past without the car and then we use a little thing in the vest a button to get back to the but when they come back they're back in the car they're back in the car it doesn't make any sense i don't understand it logic stay out there i'm i'm sorry that i gave you the chance to walk through that door stay out there it's like the car waits in limbo for them to try to return i don't logic's out the door again we're good you're right okay, okay. he's back in his room his side room where i put him logic stay there yeah logic you just go sit in that room and pick up a highlights magazine and <laughs> I don't do some crossword puzzles or something. And stare at the weird map on the wall that's all childlike. It just has dentists for some reason all over it. Why is it always dentists? Debate whether or not you're too old to play with that that toy that has the the wooden balls that go along the, the track. The track? Yeah. You're not too old. I, I have two kids and a third on the way. You're not too old. It's still fascinating. All right, cool. And you still try to figure out how many sets you could do of like, what's the largest train you could do that you could bring it over like the weird yeah, yeah, wires yeah, yeah. and then occasionally do like a one you're like i bet i can fling this one like all the way through it <laughs> i'm glad to know that you have no qualms with just sitting down at the kids table and playing with that absolutely not my daughter gets very upset because she looks at me it's just like it's my turn i'm just like you fuck right off <laughs> you can do this when watch you how have cool kids. this is when i launch this one all the way through oh you're just gonna do it like a normal kid would do it you get creative or get the fuck out <laughs> I feel like it's different if I sat down and tried to do it because I wouldn't have a kid accompanying me. It wouldn't be like, look, what this is how you use it. It would just be a, a weird man sitting there playing with it. It would be Matthew Broderick with a mustache. Exactly. And every time he grows that mustache, I bet a cop shows up on his doorstep <laughs> and gives him like a form that says, till you shave 500 feet away from that school zone, don't even think about it. And everybody else in the waiting room is looking at Sarah Jessica Parker like, are you going to tell your kid to stop doing that? <laughs> And then the dentist comes out and looks at her and says, 
No horses allowed in here. Should be tied up outside. <laughs> so yeah, logic. Go do that. <laughs> Go do all that. I do have an actual IMDb trivia fact about this. Though. Again? Yeah, I do. Oh I my god! It's like rapid fire. It feels like. I should note that this is the only actual IMDb trivia fact that was marked as being a spoiler for the movie. Oh, thrilling. Max tells Fielding not to stick her head out of the window. All the windows are sealed. She can't open them. I feel like that spoiled it for me. Ruined. Ruined the movie. I love when they finally do go back in time. Like, you see their faces morph a little bit. Like, yeah. they stretched out and stuff. It's like, that's actually kind of a neat little visual there. It was pretty neat. It was like um, in Guardians 2 when they're jumping across all the different loops. That's exactly what it was. And their faces get all weird. Reminded me of that. And I was like, ah, that's cool. I love it. And even the the calm, cool Jean-Claude Van Damme starts screaming right before they go through the rune. <laughs> the rune? Yeah. That's the Tommy Wiseau movie that I didn't know that I wanted. <laughs> it's the sequel to The Room. <laughs> like if, he, if he did some sort of like Middle Ages movie, how <laughs> he goes, aha, king. <laughs> I really wanted to be a, a Tommy Wiseau time travel movie though what time do you think he would go back to is the real question what, like, time? what time do you think it'd be like i'm gonna be cool in what time and i actually think i have the answer which is wild i really liked the medieval idea i think it, it would be the medieval idea or he would go back and try to befriend james dean oh absolutely. because he has a bit of an obsession with him also yeah and that's a weird buddy comedy that i didn't know i needed i would watch the hell out of that just Time-traveling Tommy Wiseau trying to befriend James Dean. I'm in. All day, I'm in. Yeah, I kind of need that yesterday, actually. <laughs> Let's call the studio. Let's get this made. With time travel, we can actually get it yesterday. It's true. Can't go forward. Can only go back. <laughs> as long as we have a shot-for-shot shot remake of that sex scene from this movie, but with Tommy Wiseau. Oh, yes, please. Just zoom in on that ass. How much money do you think you'd have to give Mia Sarah to even consider oh, no. it? Not even do it, but consider it. More than we could afford, for <laughs> sure. Any studio budget, they'd be like, oh, no, we're going to have to pay this poor woman a lot. This movie, Time Cop, cost $27 million. <laughs> that's probably the starting bid for Sex Scene with Tommy Wiseau. No, that's just to get her in the door to hear the pitch. We'll give you $27 million. Just to entertain the idea. They throw on an extra mill at the end just so you could do the You Are My Rose song again. Just like <laughs> in the room. <laughs> it's like, what's the chorus of that song? You are my rose, you are my rose, you are my rose, you are my rowos. Rowos. <laughs> movie's a masterpiece. It's so terribly good. You have me like thinking about the medieval idea though. Like if, if it was Tommy Wiseau in medieval times. I feel like it would be like the Daniel Craig part in A Kid in King Arthur's Court, where he's like the hero yes. of it, and he's like trying to guide the kid <laughs> along the way. Something like that, or almost like an idiocracy situation where they think he's like a genius. Oh, he would love that so much. <laughs> but really, he's giving them terrible advice. It's just advice, though. He doesn't know it's terrible. Right. He, the best part about it. He's just going along with it. He's like, yeah, I am very smart. He would cast himself as Camacho, <laughs> without a doubt. Oh, it's got what plants crave. Look at these pecs. They're doing the dancey thing that the cruise man did. <laughs> oh, hi, Old Spice. <laughs> Tommy loves yogurt. 
<laughs> oh, now I need him to speak third person the entire time. For sure. Uh, he would. For sure he would. Oh, love it. Love and it. he has this obligatory football throwing scene. Oh, yeah, yeah. You have to. Of course. And his random tuck scene, too. <laughs> random. And history shows that you should probably do those scenes at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's the natural progression of those scenes. Goes to medieval times and just throws the football around in suits. <laughs> <laughs> a bunch of just peasants of some village. Oh, man, and he's doing like the Jim Carrey cable guy, but in Tommy Wiseau. That's combining too many impressions. <laughs> so many! <laughs> Tommy Wiseau singing karaoke. I think we need to write it. I think we do, too. Also, Matthew Broderick's in The Cable Guy, and he killed two people in Ireland. And has a creepy mustache sometimes. Exactly. Full circle. We did it. We've done it. So when Walker and Fielding get back to 1994. <laughs> That's the right segue there. <laughs> None? Yeah. It felt appropriate. When they get back to 1994, they find a young Senator McComb arguing with his business partner, Jack Parker, played by Kevin McNulty, about their company's new computer chip. This is briefly mentioned earlier in the movie. You'd be forgiven for not paying attention to it, though, because they really gloss over it. They did. I forgot all about it. Parker offers to buy McComb's share of the company. But then suddenly, 2004 McComb comes out of a portal, and he's like, hey, don't take that check. You're going to need that money because this computer chip is going to blow up and make billions of dollars. And I love McComb's reaction to seeing... Macomb, because it's, who are you? You look so much different. I don't know. Who are you? It's not the guy who looks exactly like you and sounds exactly like you, but it is. Like, 10 years doesn't make a difference. It's really not that much, especially like as an adult man. You might have a few more grays, but that's it. That's it. His hair's a little different. He still has the exact same beard. Yep. I don't know. It's bizarre how people can't recognize themselves maybe he's just like scared he's like who the fuck are you who looks like me how are you here and i'm here let's I, let's high five each other i always wanted to high five myself don't touch don't touch me i love how close he gets to himself and then goes like hey whoa don't touch me bro don't go that close then bro right like you're circling around your own body and you're expecting him to not be like i need to touch myself to make sure i'm really here <laughs> But they're really hammering home this don't touch me thing. So They sure are. You know, fists on desks and whatnot. Favros and salutes and whatnot. <laughs> Walker announces his presence in the room and holds a gun on McComb. McComb's like, yeah, well, that's all good, but you're up there and I'm down here. I'd like to see how you get down here without taking that gun off me. And that's when Agent Fielding comes in and she's got a gun on him. And he's like, oh, yep, that's, that's how you're going to do that. Makes sense, yeah. And then he slides down a pole, and he's on the same level as McComb and his thugs, who are all disarmed. I like how he has to slide down this ladder like a badass when he could have just walked like 20 feet over and gone down the stairs. Used the stairs. In fact, he could have used the stairs and had the gun on McCombs the whole time. Sure could have. But, you know, that drama. That's not how JCVD rolls. Exactly. He's like, no, I'm going to turn around, and I'm going to slide down the ladder. You're still making him sound so Dutch. <laughs> like, I'm just waiting for a scene in this movie from your impression of him just eating his own skin. <laughs> I love gold. <laughs> I love gold. I feel like with JCVD, it wouldn't be my winky was a key the whole time. It would be 
my bare ass is the key the whole time. <laughs> I mean, we it gets enough screen time. It really does. We'll get there. <laughs> so Walker's feeling pretty good, and he's he's talking to Macomb like, it's it. It's over. I got you. But then it's a little bit of a double cross happening here because Fielding turns her gun on Walker. She's been working for Macomb's the whole time. The whole time. What a twist. But I do like the twist because her whole demeanor also changes. Which yes. makes it feel believable. So well done. Exactly. Because, yeah, she was like scared to go back to the past and she was out of her element and almost inept. And then as soon as she turns on him, she's like, yeah, no, I'm a badass, actually. Uh huh. This whole time. Exactly. So a whole fight breaks out, obviously. Macomb kills Parker, wounds Fielding, attempts to kill Walker, manages to escape back to 2004. Somewhere along the way, Walker injures the young Macomb, and then there's a scar on the old Macomb. Whoa, he rippled him. Yeah, he rippled his face. When Walker returns to 2004, he finds that things have become worse. But not much worse. It's not like a, a Back to the Future Part 2 Biff Tannen situation here. Right, he hasn't gone full on into 2016. Exactly. <laughs> it's just like a, a little worse, yeah. but also a lot worse. But the scale of it that we see, not that bad. Right. The stakes have risen, but it's not hopeless yet. Exactly. Macomb now owns the computer company. There's no record of Parker. So now he has all these billions of dollars. And he's also almost guaranteed the presidency with his finances and approval rating. And the TEC is being shut down due to budget cuts. And there's also no record that Fielding ever existed. Bad guy's kind of winning. Yeah, he's winning by a lot right now. Walker realizes he has to fix things. So he hijacks the original prototype time machine which is what Macomb had been using to make his illegal trips to the past with the help of Commander Matuzik. And Matuzik doesn't even, like, know who this guy is for the most part, Walker. Yeah, he's like, I know you work for me, but, like, what are you talking about? We're best friends. Yeah, it's kind of confusing, and I think only Bruce McGill could pull this off. Yes. Because he's just so damn charming. Yeah. And the scene lasts for so damn long. It does. I saw, like, we have, like, an alternate timeline Ricky here who doesn't watch porn at work. He, like, wears a suit. <laughs> it's great. It's like, how do you differentiate a guy who watches porn at work from a guy who doesn't? I don't know. He wears a suit. He wears a suit now, and his hair is, <laughs> it's still long, but now it's in a ponytail, and he prefers to be called Richard. Amazing. He's a model employee now, to the point where he will actually go with these two to help them launch from the, the prototype machine. What a guy. Commander Matuzik sacrifices himself because, you know, security shows up. They're like, hey, you can't. Take that to the past. That's not allowed. But Matuzik is sending him. He's hitting the launch button. He gets shot. And Macomb's people are like, we got to put a stop to all of this. But they're too late because Max Walker, he's going back to the past. He just got back, but he's going back again. He, he got back to the future and he was like, nope, this isn't the future I want. Back <laughs> to the past again. He's kind of doing all the things that are illegal. He kind of is. He's making the ripples happen. The thing that you're not supposed to do. He's going back because Fielding is the only other person who knows the truth, and she'll testify if he can get her back to the present. Despite her being dead. But she's not. She's in the hospital as a Jane Doe with right? gunshot wounds. And I like how Max Walker uses this weird, like, I don't want to say the A-L-E-X-A word because things are going to start going off around my house. <laughs> but he uses that, and he's like, hey, show me. Jane Doe's, who also suffered multiple gunshot wounds yesterday. Yeah. And he gets a whole list of 
weird shit. He basically pulls out a 2004 version of a iPhone that's loaded up with all the information he needs, even though the infrastructure in 94 wouldn't be able to support it. Deus Ex Palm Pilot. You know, certainly someday they'll have, like, the internet on a screen in your pocket that you could use. This movie is not bad with the with the technological advances, except for when it comes to cars. <laughs> They're horrible when it comes to cars. The cars look so bad. The cars in this movie are just a big block that just happens to drive on the road for the most part. Yeah. It's exactly like if you stripped down like an X-Wing from Star Wars and then just enclosed it entirely. And put wheels in the bottom. Yeah. They look terrible. But they are self-driving, which again, the foresight. That's right. <laughs> Walker finds Fielding at the hospital where she agrees to testify against Macomb. That's lucky. Isn't it? But for some reason, he has to go to the lab and get a DNA blood sample of hers for reasons. All the reasons, I'm sure. So he goes over to the lab and finds the Jane Doe blood sample, but what's this? There's also a blood sample there from Melissa, and he finds out that she was pregnant. Like, we didn't know that. I'm shocked. I'm not sure how Ray Charles enjoyed his films. <laughs> He's a very artsy man, sang a lot of great songs. It's true. But I bet he, even he saw this from a mile away. <laughs> And it's kind of fucked also that he's, like, pulling this, like, scroll off of this blood vial, and, is, and it just says, like, oh, your, your wife's pregnant. All right. And he, like, stares at the blood, and he's like, oh, her blood. Oh, I <laughs> oh, miss her so much. That's baby blood. That, <laughs> that there. I mean, not technically, but, like, kind of, a little. There's baby blood in that blood, I think. I don't know how it works. Clearly. <laughs> I'm Jean-Claude Van Damme, and I'm just a time cop. Oh, gosh. Dr. Jean-Claude Van Damme, MD. That should have been a show. Time Doc. Solving medical mysteries <laughs> throughout history. From the past. <laughs> that would be amazing. He just waits for people to die, does the autopsy, then goes back and saves them. How would that even work, though? Like, all right, he shows up in, like, 1950s. Like, I heard you have oleo. <laughs> <laughs> what you have is IV. Because <laughs> he can't say the he can't say the H. He would try to say the H, but it would just like fall off like and out of his mouth. Like you have <laughs> IV. We're going to have to operate. <laughs> Him operating would be amazing. <laughs> he does the splits. <laughs> He cuts the patient open. The patient's like upright, first of all. They're up against the wall yeah. on the bed. And he does that the pose that he did at the beginning to stop the man. And he cuts him open with a scalpel. Scalpel in his spoon. toes. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. So many spinoffs. The Tommy Wiseau version, the doctor version. He could have had his own like Brussels version of ER. And then he would get really, really pissed at Joaquin Phoenix later on when he did the movie Her. And he's like, no, 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 I had that first. <laughs> what is this? the H. Ur movie. <laughs> I did not know about Ur. <laughs> he steals the vial, sort of. Kind of. Really, he's like, all right, I guess since I'm here, I might as well stop Melissa's death from happening. Yeah, I mean, he might as well ripple his own life then. <laughs> you know, why not? First, he goes back to Fielding's room and discovers that she's been moited. 
not great. And then a nurse comes in and he's standing there and she's dead. And the nurse is like, you did this because, yeah, that makes sense, actually. And then just like any innocent person that's ever existed, he ran. He runs away. So obviously she calls security. Got a fun little chase scene. Well, you're saying that when she calls security, the way that you just said that is like she pushed a button and went, ah, security. No, she. There's a Brussels man with a mullet running around. She calls out the word security. She calls security out a lot like Michael Scott declares bankruptcy. (laughs) I declare security. (laughs) Yeah, that makes him look real guilty, though. Just a lot of guilty, yeah. But he's also chasing the people who actually killed her. And it turns out it's those weird mall guys, the old punks from the mall. Exactly. But we've come full circle. Just like you did with Matthew Broderick. And his mustache. Exactly. So Walker goes to the mall where he and Melissa were that day. And he sneaks up behind her like the young version of him did. And he's like, hey, when you turn around, this is going to be weird. And I like when she turns around. She's like, who are you? It's like, how the fuck don't you know? Nobody recognizes anybody in this movie, even though they're the same person. And she's like, what happened to you? It's like, the guy just has a mullet and looks a little older. That's it. His wrinkles are slightly more pronounced and his hair's longer. People are idiots in this movie. It's been a particularly bad day at work. (laughs) It doesn't sound like that. You look tired. I mean, who are you? Unbelievable. He manages to convince her that it's him from the future. And he's like, you got to tell me about the baby thing. She's like, ah, you know. I saw your blood. (laughs) I'm from the future. Of course I know. She's like, she's like, what about me? We're happy and alive, right? And he's like, yeah, for sure. Don't worry yeah, about you're it. You're totally a living person uh, after tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We cut over to the Senate building, right? That's a thing. It's a thing. 1994, Senator McComb gets a message from his secretary, and he reads it. And he's like, oh, this is important. Cancel the rest of my meetings for the day. I'm getting out of here. And oh, yeah. When I'm president, I'll send you a picture, hun. Well, all right. Later that night. McCombs thugs break into Walker's home, just like before. But this time, the older Walker is waiting for him. He's kind of like standing guard unofficially, if you will, because he happens to be there. He's like, yeah, might as well do something. Right. And also, now that he knows that the people that came after him were just McCombs thugs, it started out as a ripple anyway. He might as well unripple the ripple. That's right. Double rips. That's two rips make a right. That's what they say. So his younger self doesn't know he's there, and he's like, Melissa, you know, stop him from leaving like you did the last time, because you were so good at, at stopping him from leaving before when we tried this. But this time she actually does, so I don't know what's different, but... I don't know what's different either. She gets him to stay. She does get him to stay, and it didn't seem all that difficult. No, which makes me you wonder... Know, due to the dressing of the cop going to work and having plenty of time. Plenty of time. And also, she manages to tell him this time, too. Like, oh, yeah, by the way, pregnant. Just, like, stops him like it's no big deal. And he just goes, no, that's great news, hon. I'm not going to go to work at all. It didn't take much for him to stay at home, did it? It really didn't. So I guess all it took was an older version of him to stop by and say, try harder. That's all it was. All I need is you from 10 years from the future to come by and tell me just to try a little harder. That's it. That's what marriage is made of, man. That's all I'm asking for. Just try a little harder. I don't need much. Just a future version of you to remind me to do the things I should be doing. It's good we're communicating now. 
in this weird 10 years apart character thing that we're doing here. Yeah. Didn't see it happening when I said I do. Didn't, admittedly. <laughs> but here we are. I'm glad we're doing it now. <laughs> Earlier at the mall when you kissed me, was I technically cheating on you with you? Unsure how that works also. That's, I don't know. So older Walker, future Walker, present day Walker, 2004 Walker. Sure. He's going to fight off all of these bad guys, or he's going to start to. He somehow still gets blindsided by one of them. But then you have two Jean-Claude Van Dams going to work. Because now the one from upstairs who stayed, the 1994 Van Dam, he's keen to the people being there. He's not taken by surprise like he was the first time. Two Van Dams. That should scare anybody. That's so many abs. There's the most abs that ever existed in a single place. Guinness was there. They declared it. They gave him the certificate. So the Jean-Claude Van Dams and Melissa take out the thugs. There's some climbing on the roof and stuff. It's very slippery because of the rain. Which Ebert points out also from his Ebert's little movie glossary. This is the climbing villain, which is a weird movie trope when you think about it. It is. Hey, we got to get you up on the roof so we can have that dangle scene. Just villains like to climb things at the end of this. At the end of movies, just in general, not even just this. It's true. It's a lot of like, hey, we got to get up to the roof so we have a dramatic fall scene. <laughs> exactly. I'm immediately thinking back to the crow, where it's like, yeah, we got to get him to the roof of this church. That's exactly what they did, and they dropped him, and then he bled a river of blood. Sure did. Filled a whole gargoyle fountain. Exactly. Those aren't easy to fill. So the Jean-Claude Van Dams and Melissa take out the thugs. I like how the 2004 Jean-Claude Van Damme is like, Wandering through the woods like he doesn't know where he is, even though it's his old house. <laughs> it's very weird. But they eventually take out all the thugs one by one, and they're left with Macomb. Right. And this is Ebert's last stop on his little movie glossary tour, because this here is the talking killer. Of course. Because Ron Silver just explains every little detail about his plan instead of just killing people. Sure does. He's like, hey, it's going to be like the 80s all over again. The top 10% is going to have all the money, and the bottom 90% are going to have to emigrate to Mexico for better living. Is that how it works? According to this guy. All right. 2004 Macomb takes Melissa hostage. And 2004 Walker finds Macomb holding Melissa. He's like, oh, that's the wrong move, man. Now you've really made me mad. But then Macomb sets a time bomb. And that's the last thing you want when you're in your house and you already know it's going to blow up. Yeah, that's not great. You're like, oh, yep, that must be the thing that does the thing. So Macomb has no qualms with just blowing the place up, knowing that he will have defeated his nemesis and that the young version of him is safe and will still go on to be president. Right. He's willing to sacrifice his old self to give his young self a better life because he still wins. Exactly. But it turns out young Macomb was tricked into coming to that house by a fake message from Walker. Right, and he happens to show up at just the right dramatic time. It I was love whenever that happens. Great timing. Just, ah, hey, you know what would be cool is if you guys were talking about how, hey, the young version of me is so far from here right now, and then he just walks in the room. And I like when he walks in the room, and he kind of like looks around like, am I in the right place? Hey, you asked me to be here, and he's like, I didn't ask you for shit. And Walker's like, yeah, see, I could be a step ahead too. That's a callback kind of. Sure is. Barely. Barely a callback. <laughs> Walker grabs the young Macomb and pushes him into the older one. And then the two of them 
occupy the same space and morph into this disgusting puddle of a man and then melt into nothingness. It looks horrible. Looks so like the bad. CGI of it, but at the same time. But it's also pretty cool. It looks awesome. It and is I love it. So fake looking, but like badass at the same time. It's like the right way to do it. Like yeah. if it looked too good, I'd be like, eh. Right. Eh, I don't want this to go on Candy Valley ever. So this is It would have been a little too disgusting if it was too realistic. So having it be fake was just like nice. The perfect choice, right. Walker carries Melissa out of the house just as the bomb explodes, destroying the house just like before. And then he lays down the unconscious Melissa next to his younger self, who's still passed out in the lawn from fighting those other goons. Fought so hard he fell asleep. Or he's in a coma. I don't know. And then 2004, Walker paces out before the police arrive. He returns to 2004. The timeline has been corrected. But he doesn't know that yet. And I actually like that because as he's like walking through the TEC, he's like very cautious. Like, what did I break? Right. Like, let's see what's still working. Here. How <laughs> is this different now? And the first thing he notices, Matuzik comes out. And he's like, you're walking. And he's like, yeah, I've been doing it since I was two. Is that weird for you? I don't. What are you talking about? I'm, I'm walking. Of course I'm walking. And it's great because that would be the first thing I wanted to see when I got back was Bruce McGill. Of course. I dream of it every time I go to a new place. It's like, man, I feel uncomfortable going to this place in Ribbon. Oh, Bruce McGill. Cool. Oh, Bruce McGill. I McGill's feel good here. now. This is good. All right. I feel like I'm at home. I'm comfortable. The TEC still exists. Fielding and Matuzik are alive. Macomb doesn't even exist anymore, though. So it's like, it's honestly the ideal scenario. It turns out that he vanished 10 years earlier after canceling all his meetings one day and just left. They never saw him again. Right. It's like going for a drive in Ireland with Matthew Broderick. <laughs> uh, hopefully it's like his mustache. It's probably not there, and it's only in a, a select lot of pictures that I saw. It's in so many. It's so gross. Oh, no. Things like a caterpillar that won't fucking metamorphosize or whatever. <laughs> Like, turn that thing into a butterfly. Get it, would it be off better your face. If there was just a butterfly on his face. <laughs> I, I have to imagine that Sarah Jessica Parker has a tramp stamp because she just seems like that type of person doing sex in the city. But he could take that tramp stamp off of her hindquarters <laughs> and he could slap that on his face. It's a butterfly <laughs> on, on, the, on the upper lip. Right. He takes it right off the literal horse's ass and just slaps it right up there. It's perfect. I hope she doesn't go for a ride with him in Ireland because I feel like we've already beat this joke. This <laughs> dead horse of a joke. Like, that's his weird move. Hey, sweetie, let's let's go to Ireland. Want to go for a casual drive through the Irish cliffs? I've never been to Ireland. I don't know. You don't know what you don't know the geography. That's just all you got. You know, the, there's cliffs. They, they cliffs. show up there in Dublin, and Jennifer Grace is waiting. It's like, oh no! I thought I, I mean, I've seen Sopranos episodes like this. This isn't good. You're supposed to be, uh oh. Ah, <laughs> uh, man, horses can't swim. She's done for. <laughs> I've played enough of Oregon Trail to know she's not fording shit. Matuzik <laughs> uh, tells Walker to go home. So he gets into his ugly car and says, take me home. And it brings him back to that old house that, that didn't blow up. And he's met by this child 
who's like, Daddy's home. Right, and the child's way too old to be picked up and held for as long as he's being picked up and held for. Yes. It's like a 10-year-old, and he's just like holding him like he's a, a three-year-old. Like, you know exactly what I'm saying. Like, yes. The kid's too old for this. And the kid probably knows it. He's like, Dad's being weird today. <laughs> Why is he holding me like that? Oh, then again, I mean, if you're as strong as Jean-Claude Van Damme, maybe you just hold the kids a little longer. Maybe. You could do a seesaw if you just, like, put a pole up his ass. You could keep that split all day. I will be lifting you up until you are 27 years old. <laughs> That's what I call it. And also, there's Melissa. She's alive, which is happy, you know? And he's missing about 10 years' worth of memories. And that's going to be fun to explain throughout the rest of their marriage. That's actually a very, very good point <laughs> that I think up. <laughs> so they go inside, and Melissa tells Max that she has something to tell him. So clearly, she learned nothing. Clearly, she learned absolutely nothing. Just tell him the thing. And that right there is Time Cop from 1994, directed by Peter fucking Hyams. This movie is so ridiculous it's and so much fun. so insane. I love it. I'm a big fan. And you know what? I do have one more actual IMDb trivia fact. Fire away. I said I love it. I'll allow it. It didn't fit anywhere in the movie, but it is about the movie. So the widescreen DVD has green lettering, and the full screen DVD has red and white lettering for the Time Cop logo. Oh, goody. I'm so glad they were able to sort all that out. Love it. Now, I'm not going to call this film a masterpiece, per se. I think that's fair. But I will call it a Jean-Claude Van Damme masterpiece. Yes. Because this is probably my favorite Jean-Claude Van Damme movie as of now. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think that the way they go about the time travel itself is interesting. It's obviously logic still outside, still in his little waiting room with highlights. That's right. Still reading Boy's Life or whatever. But I think that it hits it enough that it tells a pretty compelling story if you don't think that hard into it. Exactly. I think they put enough thought into it that it holds up against the smallest amount of scrutiny and tells a story that is at least cohesive enough that you go, okay. I think that's the right way to look at it, though. I think that's the perfect way to pull these things off. If this movie came out now, it would get destroyed. Absolutely. People because would be like, that's not how time travel works. The logic doesn't add up. And logic's just in the, the waiting room. Just found an old National Geographic, and they're thumbing through it. That's exactly. He's looking at weird African, not porn. It's just life for them. Exactly. But I think that this movie holds up beautifully even now because... Of Jean-Claude Van Damme that you can't take it all that seriously. Yes. I think it was a blessing that he was the lead in this. Because if you had somebody who was a little more eloquent speaking, the whole movie would have flopped. I completely agree. But let's see what everyone else thinks of this thing. Rotten Tomatoes, 1 to 100. Go ahead. 60. 45. Oh. And weirdly, the audience score is 36. Criminal. Ebert did see this movie. He gave it two out of four stars. He says, more than most movies about time travel, Time Cop invites you to meditate on the logical contradictions of the genre. It begins with the organization of time enforcement police laboring to prevent the tampering with time. Their job? Stop villains from tampering with the past and producing catastrophic results in the present. But right away, you have some problems. How do you know which present is your baseline? 
And how can you know it isn't already the result of tampering with the past? Just think, a zealous time cop could change the present by preventing the tampering with the past. Right. That's true. How do you arrive at your sacred timeline? He goes on to say, well, says the movie, the present is defined as now. That is because you can travel back in time, but not into the future because the future hasn't happened yet. Yes, but once you do travel back in time, the present becomes the future that has not yet happened. And furthermore, how can a traveling time cop return to the present from the past without, in effect, traveling into the future? You see what we're up against here. (laughs) All very good points. He totally gets it. And yet it didn't take away from his enjoyment of this movie. He thought that it copied a lot of things that the Terminator did Mm -hmm. in terms of its basic premise but it built on a lot of really fun ideas and Jean-Claude Van Damme. And Jean-Claude Van Damme. The folks on Amazon.com were a little less forgiving. And that's to be expected. This movie has a 4.6 out of 5, which is really, really high for this. Yeah. But it's 73% 5 star, 2% 1 star. I only pulled one. Okay. Because a lot of them, again, are broken DVD, yada, 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 because it's a bit of an older movie. I got the widescreen version, but it had the white and green logo from the full screen version. Ah, gosh, that sounds so frustrating. I need to yell at Bezos right now. (laughs) From August 3rd, 2019, long, not a very good story. Nudity could have been left out as it made it embarrassing to watch with others. It's funny you say that because I did pull this up on Cringe MDB. I'm very curious to see what they had to say. Uh, This movie is certified cringeworthy with 87.5% of the audience giving it a cringe score. Because so high. (laughs) Yes, there's a sex scene. It says no to nudity, which is not. That's not a good sex scene then. Also, it's not accurate to the movie. (laughs) Very true. (laughs) And it says no sexual violence. It does give you safe movie alternatives, though, which is my favorite part about this website. I'm like waiting to hear you say like, oh, well, you got the land before time. Nope. And then you have, we're back a dinosaur story. Then you have the good dinosaur, because it's just labeling dinosaur movies apparently in my idiot brain canon. <laughs> you almost have the algorithm figured out. It's just, there's no time travel involved with any of these movies. <laughs> okay. Uh, safe movie alternatives include Doom, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. It's a time travel movie. Planet of the Apes. Time travel movie. Star Trek First Contact. The Matrix. Donnie Darko and Donnie Darko again. Okay. <laughs> it suggested it twice. I don't know why. Yeah, why not? <laughs> that is fascinating to hear. But also, watching nudity while you're surrounded with others watching nudity, it's only weird if you make it weird. It's true. Always remember that. That's the way you should live your life. It's only weird if you make it weird. Don't make it weird, guys. This is you from 10 years in the future telling you, hey, don't make it weird. <laughs> I wish somebody would have told me that 10 years ago. Ah, man, how do I go back and tell 10 years ago Dave to don't make it weird? He's just going to be like, who are you? He'll be sitting there just watching this movie going, I'm making it weird. (laughs) Oh, God. That's gross, past Dave. Yeah, I'm embarrassed by my old self. Should have gone back 20 years, future Dave. You fucked up. (laughs) Could have corrected that weird ripple early on. Just as long as you don't occupy the same space. It's true. It said he started in media ripple instead of going all the way back to the root of the problem. <laughs> On Letterboxd. People love this movie. Good. From April 28th, 2019, largely abandoned the Einstein-Rosen bridge theory of time travel. 
in favor of the less widely known but still promising Van Damme split. <laughs> it is very promising. That was really hard to read without laughing. I bet. From January 8th, 2013, 10 minutes in, we get a Muscles from Brussels ass shot. 20 minutes in, he does a mid-fight split like it's the most normal thing in the world. <laughs> it just isn't a Van Damme film without them. I love the Windows Movie Maker special effects, but it's still a paradoxical cesspool filled with paradoxes and things that are paradoxical. But it's still kind of cool, which sounds paradoxical. I know. <laughs> uh, it's true. This movie is just a paradox of a paradox. Exactly. But the best kind. From March 1st, 2021, I was going to give this movie two stars, but then it had a scene where two guys melt into a screaming blob of many faces and limbs while vaporizing into time and space goo, and I was extremely satisfied. Five stars. Went full Cronenberg. Five stars. <laughs> Absolutely, it did. <laughs> and from January 7th, 2018, the time travel mechanics and rules are, well, all screwed up and wrong, but the roundhouse mechanics are on point. This isn't a science fiction movie. This is classic Van Damme action. I love all these people who are like, that's not how time travel works. But at the same time, they go, this isn't how time travel works, dot, dot, dot. But fuck it. It's a fun movie. Right. And on that note, let's give this thing a super stuff score. Let's do it. First up, story and motivation. <laughs> it's totally fine. It is serviceable. It's enough to make a movie. Yeah, an enjoyable one at that. I'm going to go with an easy point five because it doesn't become a thing that he's trying to like get his ex-wife back until the very end. Like it's right. just a, he falls into that scenario of just like, hey, hold on a second here. I might be able to kill two birds with one stone. Exactly. It's like, wait, it was a ripple that took out my wife? That gives me precedent. I think I'm going to go with a point five. I don't mind it. I think a point five is appropriate. Which brings us to our hero. It is JCVD. Max Walker in this, he's doing a lot of unnecessary things that are very appropriate for Van Damme. What's unnecessary about the things he's doing? The split? The holding the leg up to the criminal who stole the purse? No, I would say it's necessary. Otherwise, the knife fight? How would you know it's Jean-Claude Van Damme? He could talk, and I'll be like, that's Jean-Claude Van Damme. All right, that's fair. So I think I'm going to have to settle for like a .75 because he kicks so much ass. So much ass. Yeah, it's a .75. I can't believe we're counting the splits and high kicks against him. Well, it's because they don't fit. They come out of nowhere in this thing. That's true. And I'm going to have to stop you here in the middle of the Super Stuff score. Oh? Because Phil Hawkins wrote in, and he had a question that he had to ask us. He asked, can you add an extra category for whether or not Van Damme shows his ass in this movie? One point for <laughs> ass, zero for no ass. It's a quintessential part of the Van Damme experience. It's true. Brian, 1.75. 1.75 for Hero. Because it's Van a Damme biggie, ass. but the ass was very much there. It was double bund. Double bund. And there you go. Yeah. Count it. That's going to bring us to villain. He's okay. Senator Aaron McComb. He's going back in time to make money so he can run political ads, which is the worst kind of evil, if you ask me. It is, but it's also like the dumbest kind of evil. Yeah, like, why even be involved in politics at this point? You could just be rich enough to do whatever you want, really. Right. I'm going to go with a .25. I think that's generous also, because he's not very menacing. 
He is the talky type of villain. He's very Who is talky. just going to explain everything. He's going to monologue at you for sure. It's not terribly difficult to defeat him because he gets confused by himself. That's right. Who is that? Is that me? I can't I can't tell. I, it looks exactly like me, but I'm going to go with 0.25 cuz I like this movie. I think a 0.25 is appropriate. Cuz I don't think he deserves a zero because he was always a few steps ahead. I agree. And he had that brilliant plan of taking over the thing that could stop him. That's actually a very good plan. That's going to bring us to parents. Zero. Big old, no nothing. Big old zero. Female characters. Now, I said that plural, but... There's two. You got... Oh, yeah. You're right. Agent Fielding, and you have Melissa Walker. Right. I think that Fielding is pretty badass. She is. And I always appreciate seeing Mia Sarah, because you always forget that she's a thing unless you're watching Ferris Bueller. Right. And now I can think of her in this movie, too. It's like, ah, good for you. You've doubled doubled my Mia Sarah knowledge. And even though you got fridged pretty hard in this movie, hey, you know, sometimes that happens in movies. Actually, quite often. Can I tell you something fascinating about Mia Sarah? What? She's been married twice. Okay. And she's been married to famous people's sons. Oh, because from 1996 to 2002, she was married to Jason, wait for it, Connery. Oh, I was not expecting that twist. Son of Sean Connery. I don't know how the breakup happened, but do you dare dump a Connery kid? That sounds insane to me. It does sound insane. And you want to know who she ended up marrying in 2010? Who? Eight years after her split with the Connery kid? Hi-ho, Brian Henson here. That is... Um, a shift? Just a major one? Wow. She went from one kid whose dad kicked all the asses James Bond to another kid whose dad put his hand up puppets' asses all the and asses. made them talk. <laughs> so there you go. Has nothing to do with her character in this movie. I just found it fascinating. You know, I agree. That is fascinating. Wow. Also point two five. Yes. Mostly for fielding. Yes. She was awesome. Loved her. But neither one of them were really treated with the respect they deserved. Completely agree. Setting. Where are we? We are in front of a green screen that's supposed to be Washington, D.C. Oops. (laughs) Let's go with zero. All right. That's a zero for setting. Style and tone. Oh, boy. (laughs) They... Did not know what 2004 was going to look like, and I don't hold that against them. No, but they did make some pretty good predictions as far as technology is concerned. Like what? You know, like uh, smartphones, VR, uh, self-driving cars, things like that. So what do you want to give this then for style and tone? I have no idea. I'll give it a .25 because if I look at this thing ever, I'm going to be like, time cop. Got it. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's definitely time cop. Look at that car. That's a time cop car. Oh, absolutely it is. Point two five. Music. Uh, it's forgettable to me. I only remember the saxophone from the sex scene. That's all I remember. I remember that I thought it was pretty good in the opening credits, and then the opening credits went on for two minutes and 26 seconds. <laughs> so long. It was so long that I started so to hate the music and just said, get on with this fucking movie. Yeah. Uh, Mark Isham, I think. Yeah, zero. Zero for music? Zero. Zero. Nailed it. One-liners. One. Yes. Thank there you. are so many in this movie. The dialogue is actually unbelievably good. My favorite thing about Jean-Claude Van Damme in this movie is every time he tries to give like a, 
a slick one-liner before he kills somebody. It's always terrible. And then he comes back later. He's like, oh, I should have said this instead. It's amazing it's so how he good. corrects himself because he understands that's who he is as an actor. Yeah. And the writers know who he is as an actor, and that's what they're feeding him. And then they double down on it to make it look even better for him. It's like, that is genius. Brilliant. One. One. Impact on the industry. <laughs> Probably not all that high. I think, think it's going to be pretty low, in fact. Uh, I'm going to have to go with a zero, I think. Yeah, I think zero is appropriate. I mean, it made a decent amount of money, but... Made $101 million. This thing was a hit. Yeah. And it got a direct-to-DVD sequel and a short-lived seven-episode run of a TV show. So Yeah, zero sounds about right. That is going to give Time Cop a total score of a four. Nailed it. Yep. Perfectly got it right. Four You're welcome, everyone. is perfect for this movie. It's a, it's a good four. It's a great four. So, Brian, I guess the next question is, what are we talking about next week? Next week, we're going to be talking about a movie that never was. We talk about a documentary, our first documentary, about the death of Superman lives. What happened? It is a wild documentary. (laughs) We've been asked a lot about what we thought about this mythical Tim Burton-directed Nick Cage Superman movie, and we finally get to talk about it. It's about time and if you want to watch this movie before we actually talk about it, before you hear the episode you can go on youtube and watch it with french subtitles <laughs> yep that's true but it is so well done and the story so well told in it and you realize just how nutty it is and how weird and unique it would have been yeah i'm really excited to talk about this one i've been dying to talk about this one for a while so stay tuned for that until then be sure to rate review subscribe join us on patreon this month for smoky and the bandit Email us your questions and comments to capepodcasters at gmail.com. We actually got one here coming to us from Cubicle Monkey. He says, hello again. I listened to the Armageddon episode on Friday, and I have a stupid IMDb trivia fact and question for you. Okay. Mixing them together. I like it. Armageddon is famous for Aerosmith's I Don't Want to Miss a Thing, but Bruce Willis also has a band, the uncreatively named the Bruce Willis Blues Band. Uh Uh-huh. It's the Washington (laughs) football team of band names. Nailed it. <laughs> now let's imagine an Armageddon reboot where Bruce Willis sings I Don't Want to Miss a Thing and Steven Tyler is the world's number one driller. Oh my God, that's amazing. Is this the better Armageddon movie? Would Steven Tyler save us or would we be doomed? Where does this alternative Armageddon rank in the Criterion Collection? <laughs> I'm thinking in this version of like how, you know, when they're drilling down and they're just finally about to break that mark, you have all that tension building. Yeah. The drill keeps going. They're they're counting it down almost. Of I don't remember how many meters they had to go down. I don't either. But then just as they're about to get there, you have AJL. I'm like, are we there? And then I know we're here. Yeah, 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 yeah! <laughs> and the answer is yes, it's a better movie. Absolutely. Of course it is. I don't even know if they need to go all the way out there to drill and do all that. Steven Tyler just opens his mouth. and He just opens and up and the asteroid flies the right asteroid. on down that gullet, man. <laughs> Uh, I'd watch it. Absolutely, I would. And you know that Steven Tyler's drill has all those like weird like streamers coming down from his drill just like he has on his mic stand. Oh, yeah. The thing looks like a stationary (laughs) baton from like a floor routine in the Olympics. Ridiculous. (laughs) It's a better movie. It's a better movie. With Steven Tyler as the driller. (laughs) 
And, you know, I think Bruce Willis could have used the charting song. <laughs> he could have. <laughs> Fantastic question. Thank you Thank for you, that Thank you, Cubicle question. Monkey. <laughs> so if you have any questions or comments, you can also send them to kpodcasters at gmail.com. Or you can hit us up on our social media at kpodcasters. On Facebook, we always throw up a post before we record asking for your questions. We got some. Let's do it. Zeus wants to know. What are other good pieces of furniture to do dope Van Damme splits on? <laughs> I recommend coffee tables. It's a good beginner uh, thing because it's low to the ground, so you don't fall as far. You wouldn't, but I feel like getting your weight that low and mm-hmm. then balancing, that's not going to be fun. Unless you start from the floor. You could start from the floor. That's a good point. I would recommend that you go to your nearest Olive Garden, and Ooh. if you see the tables are an appropriate spacing apart, Maybe just Van Dam right on those. Yeah. And just stay there and just wait and let them feed you unlimited breadsticks. So they have to go around you now because you're Van Damming all over their Olive Garden. And they can't say anything because when you're there, you're family. Exactly. Your family's not going to talk to you like that. I thought we were family. <laughs> it's not Dutch, goddammit. <laughs> Do you remember when everybody was planking? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. I feel like anywhere you plank is a great place to do the splits. So you really want to like bring back like a TikTok thing and just make it like a Van Damming? Van Damming. I like that quite a bit. It's actually a perfect name for it, too. That's amazing. Like You can go down the New York City subway and just Van Dam across like the oh the escalator all the way up. I love that. Just annoy everybody. It'd be perfect. <laughs> but also people would be like, that's super impressive, but I hate this person. That is super impressive, but you got to fuck all the way off. That's insane. <laughs> the last question we have is from Captain Spoiler Micah. He asks... What are you going back to change in 2011, given the opportunity? I'm going to make sure that tiger blood never happens. Just just get to Charlie <laughs> Sheen early and just stop the whole thing. All the Charlie Sheen stuff did not have to happen. That was during his whole freak out, wasn't it? It sure was. That's kind of brilliant. I mean, I hope he wasn't asking for something personal. <laughs> because personally, I'd be like, who are you? I don't recognize you. You're 10 years older. It's impossible to recognize yourself after 10 years. It's true. I'm me blind when it comes to that. Everybody is. It's well documented. If I were to go back to 2011, I would find Adam Sandler and lock him in a cage for a full year <laughs> so that he could not make Jack and Jill. Oh, that's totally fair. <laughs> Thank you for making me not make that movie. <laughs> he deserves to be just imprisoned. For his own safety and the safety and well-being for everyone outside as well. I like that you're going full Minority Report pre-crime. You have to when it comes to an Adam Sandler movie. Like He should be able to read the script and be like, no, I'm going to Minority Report this and decline to do this movie. (laughs) But he doesn't. I feel like you'd salvage so much of what was potentially still a viable career at that point. (laughs) Exactly. He wouldn't have to like sell his soul to Netflix and... That's what I would do. That's what I would change. I would save Adam Sandler. That's noble of you. <laughs> Is it, though? Is it worth it? I don't know. What would we have gotten instead? That's a great point. Everybody, thank you for your questions. <laughs> Brian, you got anything else? I just want to say thank you to all of our patrons that helped out with uh, the Extra Life Foundation. Everybody who joined us on stream and donated. We raised a ton of money last weekend. Uh, it was great. It really was a great time, and as a team, we raised over $9,000. It's insane. Which is nuts. It's wild. And we're already planning on what we could do next year to even break that number somehow. Somehow. 
uh, yeah, we've already started talking about that, which might seem a little soon because I know we've just been hounding you guys for the last few months about give us money, donate, join our Patreon, do this, do that. But it all went to a very good cause. So it absolutely did. I'm very proud of everybody. I'm very proud of our patrons for upping their donations and their subscriptions and everything. It all goes to a great place. It was well worth it in the end. And now we can stop talking about it for a couple months at least. Exactly. That's all I've got. Fantastic. We're going to see you guys next week for The Death of Superman Lives. What happened? Same pod time. Same pod. For real, Matthew Broderick killed two people. Thank you.